0: Good morning, Covenant. Good to see you here. Happy Labor Day weekend to you. And if you're a guest with us, welcome. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors. Welcome also to those of you who are joining us online this weekend from wherever you are in the continental United States or perhaps even you left the country uh, for the holiday weekend. Enjoy your time. And if you're part of the Covenant family, we look forward to having you back with us. We're gonna be in several different passages today. We've got about three weeks left in this series that we started back in the late part of the summer called The Return of the King. Just kind of touching base systematically on what does the scriptures teach? What do the scriptures have to teach us about the return of Jesus? What what can we know for sure? What are some of those areas of debate around which we can certainly continue to have opinion, but we've gotta find some sort of unifying rallying point. And we come today to a couple of subjects that can be considered kind of frightening, all right? Discussion of the future can be scary, can't it? And for a lot of people, sometimes you, you end up in that point. I know when I was growing up, I was exposed to books and resources, being a child of the late 70s and the early 1980s, if you were a Christian during that time or you grew up in church, during those periods you kind of know some of the literature and the resources that I'm talking about that focused around the end of the age and they presented these events in the most frightening way possible. I heard sermons about a future time when the world was just going to come apart at the seams and I was anxious after listening to those messages. Now. Part of my anxiety came from the fact that I was 14, 15, 16 years old. And so when you hear something that scary at that age, you're naturally going to process those things like a young man who hasn't even been alive for two decades yet and is entering, has entered adolescence is going to process those and should be expected to process those. Which is another way of saying, just to put it bluntly, I would hear about all this scary stuff that's about to happen and as an adolescent young man, I would be scared to death that all of this is going to take place before I get to have sex. I'm just being honest, all right? Yep, that was mature, immature, and boneheaded, but that's where I was, okay? That's where every 15, 16-year-old boy is. There were other things I was afraid I was going to miss out on as well. Am I going to get to drive? Am I going to own a car? Am I going to get married? Am I going to get to play ball? At that point, I hadn't made varsity yet, and that was really important to me, right? And so I have this world in which it just scared me. And then I got older. I became a young adult. I got my license, I got a car, I got a wife. Things started happening, and I was troubled by something entirely different. In this case, it was all the uncertainty that seemed to surround so many of these biblical passages. By that point, I'd begun to study scripture, not just to deepen my walk with the Lord, but also academically. I'd started studying for ministry. And so I was reading about the history, something, it's a discipline called historical theology. What are the ways in which Bible scholars and theologians have looked at various texts from the first century to the present and how have certain sort of a cultural angles, languages, different ways, the limitations of where people stand respective to where they are in history and geography uh, have limited their view, but also what insight have they given us. And, And what I started to see particularly around eschatology was that there was a lot of teaching that wasn't entirely clear. And then I began to be a pastor. The small little church in Muldrow, Kentucky invited me at 26 years old, either because they weren't very bright or because they were very patient to come and be their lead pastor. And during the roughly three or four years that I served that small little congregation, I started seeing anxiety not only in myself around passages like this, but people who followed me, people that I had a responsibility for shepherding their souls. And I noticed that it, it, it brought a lot of things Uh, uncertainty and anxiety, and usually this surrounded a lot of big world events, and the first one of those I encountered as a young pastor was something called Y2K. Anybody remember the Y2K bug? Remember that? Yeah, all these computers in the world and the date is we did, we forgot to plug in four digits. We only plugged in two digits and the processor's going to click down on December 31st, 1999. And when it switches over and goes to double zero, every computer on the planet is going to think it's 1900 and then their brain is going to get fried and then every unit on the planet is going to die and then we're all going to die. You remember that? Those were fun times, weren't they? Yeah, And so and so all of that kind of stuff then got you know, kind of fueled into and wedged into this idea around the end? Is this connected to the end? And then I noticed that while that uncertainty brought a level of fear, there was something else that brought more fear. It was preachers and pastors that would have it all figured out. I know where this fits. I know where that fits. And they would have a Bible over here and a newspaper over here and a map that connected them both and then diagrams and everything else showing you how all of this put together. But what was interesting about it was it purported the most frightening scenarios possible because there's nothing like adding, to dra- adding drama to confusion, Right? And that's the kind of thing that I started to notice. And then I started to contrast that, still a lot of things then, still a lot of things now, as I've admitted to you that I don't understand about the second coming, but I started to contrast the outcome of churches in that, under, under the rubric of that teaching with what I was, was obvious to me was the apostolic vision of eschatology. In other words, when the people who actually wrote the Bible teach us about the second coming of Jesus, what's their goal? And I would read things like, well, the following: First Thessalonians four. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, if you're walking out of the sanctuary shaken, or you're walking out of sanctuary angry, or you're walking out of sanctuary thinking that Muslims are the enemy, or Jews are the enemy, or liberals or conservatives are the enemy, if that's what you're walking up, the, that, that's not encouraging. Revelation seven seventeen. therefore encourage one another with these words, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, 2220, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen, come Lord, Jesus, every time I read an outcome around the end, I read encouragement, I read empowerment, those seem to be the preferred outcomes of the apostles. So much of biblical prophecy teaching in the West, by contrast, was about sensationalism and culture warring and false associations and trying to find an enemy that we got to fight and and something that we got to gear up, some battle we got to gear up for. And and interestingly enough, it always ended with some money that you could send to some organization that would fight that phantom for you. That's kind of how this works. And I thought to myself at that moment, what if we're doing this wrong? You ever ask yourself that? Sometimes when you look at the fruit of a teaching, it's not merely whether you think you're right. Look at the fruit of the teaching and compare it to the fruit of the Spirit. And if there's a God-awful mismatch, you're doing something wrong. And so when it comes to the second coming, I just said, you know what, I think maybe we're getting this wrong. So as we continue our series, I want to deal head on with a couple of passages that have seemed to stoke the most fear and spawn the most conspiracies. And, and what I want to do is give you a different set of lenses to look at these two things in particular Antichrist and the mark of the beast. Now, let, let me first give you sort of the most popular way that these two have been both related to each other and explained to us over roughly about the last 150 years in the West, keeping in mind that this has been the predominant narrative only for about 150 years and only in the Western world, Western meaning Europe, the United States, those parts of the world. We are told that in the future there will be a singular figure who will emerge on the World scene. This figure is going to be popular, he's going to be charismatic, and he's going to be deceptive. He is going to be a political pied piper. And he will entrap the entire planet in his deception. And once that trap is set, he will then turn violent. And that at least part of his rule, a very significant part of his rule, will include a mark. Something that if you want to continue to live life on the grid, you're going to have to take this either on your right hand or on your forehead. And without that mark, it's going to be increasingly difficult for you to survive. Now, what I want you to consider about that narrative is again, that it's actually a very modern reading of what John is intending to say here. I'm not telling you it's wrong, but I am saying few people actually read these passages in this way until a very short time ago in history. Now here at Covenant, when we train teachers and preachers, they don't all have to agree with their pastor, but we do insist on one very foundational principle. It's called authorial intent. That's a fancy word that just simply says the meaning of the text is the meaning that the author of the text intended to communicate. You following me so far, all right? So here at Covenant, we believe... All of the Bible as a whole and every part of the Bible down to the words is the Word of God revealed to us. Every word fully inspired, meaning we can trace the origin of every comma, every breathing mark of the Hebrew, every accent mark in the Greek back to the very breath of God. When you're reading the Word of God, you are literally reading His words. We believe that here. You follow me so far? Okay. Because we believe that, We believe that the meaning of those words is not determined by Joel or any of you or any of your political frameworks or any of your strong opinions or the limitations of where you may stand historically or geographically. It is instead determined by the Holy Spirit inspired author by the Lord that God used roughly 40 authors to write his words, So the meaning of a text Is determined by asking this one simple question What did the Holy Spirit inspired author intend to say here? Put another way, the entirety of the preaching ministry here at Covenant demands that we willingly submit ourselves to the intent of the authors of Scripture. And to do that, we have to have an understanding that their words were first communicated to another audience, which means this, whatever this means, whether you agree with me or not, it cannot, listen carefully, it cannot mean to me what it did not mean to them. You following me so far? You with me? Okay. It cannot mean to me or to you what it did not mean to them. So today I'm going to cover with you, you say, well, well, maybe it can, maybe it can, that's called theological liberalism. Okay, When you start imputing meaning to the text rather than extracting meaning from it as understood by the authors, you're right there with Schleiermacher and the German higher critics and you can call yourself a lot of things, but a Bible believer would not be one of them. Okay, So what I want to do is I want to cover with you what I believe to be a first century understanding of these words. And when we're done, you don't have to agree with everything I say, but but again, there's a lot of questions around the meaning of these passages. I do hope that in the end, I will not have filled you with fear, but with hope because I firmly believe that's the Lord's intent in giving us this information. So let's start with Antichrist. Now, both when we consider both what the, the scriptures teach and historically, the way the church has understood this term, it's used generically to describe any person Who meets the following two qualifications. Number one, they oppose Jesus Christ or the teachings of Christ. And secondly, they substitute themselves for Christ and seek to usurp the authority of Christ over the lives of other people. And we're taught that many such people will exist, that they will emerge, that they will deceive, and that this is going to happen over and over until the coming of Jesus. The exact phrase Antichrist occurs five and only five times in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, only in the first and second letters of John, who I also believe wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's a similar description of false Christs. The word antichrist isn't used, but we do see the phrase false Christ in passages like Matthew 24, Mark chapter 12. And there is some very, very solid scholarship that ties the antichrist to two passages where he's not mentioned explicitly. One of those is in Daniel 7. Uh, There's a reference to something called the little horn. That's most likely a reference to a figure in history known as Antiochus IV. He was a Greek king. And by the 2nd century, he will take control of the temple in Jerusalem, and he will use it for pagan sacrifices. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in Solomon's temple. All right? that, that was later called the abomination of desolation. And those ritual sacrifices, even if you get beyond the way our Jewish friends would have rightfully uh, abhorred that kind of action, you and I as Christians understand that those sacrifices are to point to Jesus. And so when you misrepresent them, yeah, that's about as antichrist as it gets. The other reference is the one that Isaac read to us at the outset of our time together. It's in 2 Thessalonians 2 where this man is described as a man of lawlessness. Read with me again, beginning in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God Proclaiming himself to be God. Now, remember what I said. This cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. Still awake and following me? Okay. So, what did it mean to them? This is Paul's second letter. He wrote two of them to the church at Thessalonica. He wrote the first one to inform and encourage them around the resurrection. He had to leave because of persecution. And so there's some incomplete teaching there. There's some things they didn't know. And then their loved ones began to die, and they find themselves in this spiritual dilemma. What's going to happen when Jesus comes back? Are they going to miss out? And Paul writes 1 Thessalonians for a number of reasons, but chiefly to give them some encouragement. If Jesus is coming back soon then this is what you need to understand about your loved ones who've passed away. They're not going to miss out. But then shortly after that letter was written, Paul gets word that apparently there's a significant number of folks that had decided on the basis of his first letter, you know, if Jesus is really coming back soon, there's really no need for me to go to work tomorrow. There's really no need for me to pay my bills. There's no need for me to pay my taxes. There's no need for me to care about and see about my family. There's no need for me to take responsibility for the larger um, society as a whole. Some people today may even think that. There's no real contribution that I need to make to the system because it's a worldly system, and you may have even heard something like that before. It's all going to burn up anyway, right? Very kind of immature, well, it's not new. It's the way the Thessalonian church, many of them at least, were were thinking about these things. And so they say, after all, the day of the Lord is upon us. I'm supposed to be living for the next world anyway. So the same Paul who writes 1 Thessalonians to say, look, Jesus is coming soon. Have hope, take encouragement, writes the second one to say, get a job, right? Keep a job. He calls this behavior what it is, idleness, sloth. We're seeing some of that today, aren't we? I passed somebody just yesterday, great big sign, right behind that sign, a baby, it's an empty baby stroller, About might have been my first clue, and then a big sign, asking for money on the side of the road where my family and I were traveling, holding up the sign, but I noticed he was glancing down, and behind him he had a Samsung iPhone, I don't know where he got that thing from, but he had it, and the sign said, I have three children, I can't get work. Are you kidding me? You can make 15 bucks an hour right now running a register at Sheets. Maybe Paul's words, not to everybody. I get there's some exceptions. I get there's a lot of complications around poverty. Those of you that are about to go ballistic on me, I understand all of that. But there's also a very basic, well, I'm holding out for a management position. Yeah, we'll back some groceries until that management position shows up. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with, with all of your might. And perhaps even Paul's wisdom would be good here, given to the second, his second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's a sidebar, throwing that in for free today. That's the situation that Paul speaks into. And he says to the church, get back to living your life here. Because until the Lord comes, you're going to have some hardships to contend with and and some things to do and and some commands to obey, and you need to be ready for what is coming. And it's in that instructional context that we're introduced to a couple of of nebulous characters, a restrainer and a man of lawlessness. So of the restrainer, he says in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Literally, you could say, he will restrain until he is out from in between. So think of the analogy of a dam between you and this great flood, right, of persecution. That dam stands in the middle and it protects you. This restrainer, whatever, whomever it is, does the same thing. And in the future, it's going to be removed. So who's the restrainer? Well, there have been a number of stipulations. Probably the most popular today is to say that that restrainer is the Holy Spirit, through the presence of the church. If you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, this fits pretty well within that, that scenario that, that the Holy Spirit, once the rapture takes place, the Holy Spirit embodies, is, is, indwells in His people, the church, and when the church is taken out of the way, the Holy Spirit taken out of the way with it, and the Holy Spirit has been restraining evil, keeping it back, and so evil will just flood the earth. Another viewpoint is that This is a reference to Paul's own preaching of the gospel. Uh, Some of the early church fathers believe this. John Calvin, second generation reformer, believed this, that, that Paul was speaking about his own proclamation. And we do observe, at least somewhat in history, that after Paul's martyrdom, we begin to see persecution of the Christian church exponentially grow in Rome in the latter part of the first and even on into the, the second century and beyond. And then there's a, a third least primary view and that is that the, this restrainer is the, the Roman Empire itself. When you think about it, that tends to make sense. And that would be my own understanding of what he's referring to here. The Romans had a road system. They had a justice system. They brought the Pax Romana. No, the, they weren't always kind to Christians. But wherever Rome existed or occupied in the, in the ancient world, there was relative peace. And there was a restraint of evil such that Paul, even in Romans 13... Some six years after he writes these words, tells the church at Rome, hey, government, including this one, it's by and large an instrument for good because what does it do? It restrains evil. Now, ultimately, we can agree to disagree on all this because we don't know and they did because what's happening here is Paul's using some insider language with the church at Thessalonica, sort of like we do around here. If you've been around Covenant for less than a couple of months, and, and you've probably been told, hey, there's this, there's this event going on and it's in the Whack," And you said, where's the Whack? You're sitting in it. Why do you call it the Whack? I have no clue. I've always thought it was a stupid name. So we're working to change it, okay? All right. Uh, Some of you are Afghanistan vets. Hopefully you're joining us on the sand table chat this afternoon after the 11 o'clock service. That one's going to be in 432. Are you confused? Yeah, because if you haven't been here very long, you don't know what that means. And so we're in the process of renaming some stuff around here and giving it some common area. Somebody even suggested the other day that with 65,000 square feet around here, maybe we ought to provide a map to people. In our Discover Mission class, so for those of you that are joining us next week and sitting down with me for Discover Mission, we're going to do our best to produce a really high-quality layout of the building for you. Uh, Probably not such a bad idea, right? But that's what is that? That's insider language. We're not trying to keep other people out. It's just that we've developed our own culture around here, and we have to be honest about those kinds of things. And that's why there is sometimes some disagreement around these things. Jeffrey Wiemann and his Baker exegetical commentary series on this book suggests, you ready for this, seven possible understandings of this passage. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's also okay to have a strong opinion, as long as you're humble enough to not see the others as heretics. Particularly given the fact that this isn't just insider language, it's insider language 2,000 years removed from us. So we don't instantly recognize who or what this is in the way the original hearers would have. But here's what we do know. Once this restrainer is removed, lawlessness increases, which means that the present mystery of lawlessness becomes a future man of lawlessness. So Paul is talking to us here about an antichrist. Who is this person? Who is this person? The late John Stott said Christians have practiced considerable ingenuity trying to identify this person. And I like the way he put that. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna. So we're talking about late 1st century, early 2nd century, the man who was still pastoring this church when John wrote Revelation and included his letter to Smyrna. So a couple of things we know then from there about Polycarp, he was there in the middle of the action, which means he would certainly know far better than I would 2,000 years later. And... Far better than me as a Westerner who's never been persecuted a day in my life. Polycarp, based on what we know occurred at Smyrna and what we know later happened to him in his martyrdom, certainly knew something of persecution. And he preached that this isn't just one person. This is anyone throughout any point in history who preaches false doctrine or who seeks to assert themselves in a position to where only Christ belongs. And over the years, others have disagreed with Polycarp. And they've said, no, no, it's it's an individual. And some have gone even further and said, and I know who that individual is. 500 years ago during the Protestant Reformation, both Martin Luther and Pope Leo, imagine this, referred to each other as the Antichrist. Pope Leo said, arise, O Lord, a wild boar has invaded thy vineyard. And as a Protestant, I say, thank God for that wild boar. Luther was more plain when speaking about Leo. He simply said, I feel much freer now that I am certain that the the Pope is the Antichrist. He's certain. And so all these these are not new questions. Are these events and this man identified among all other Antichrists but confined to Paul's time? Is this man an ultimate culmination of lawlessness that's still in your future and mine? Wherever you land on those questions, I'm going to contend... Those are not the most important questions for us. Don't miss the point because you're looking for something sensational. Okay? It's not, I believe, the Holy Spirit's intent that later readers of this letter, you and me, be able to finally and confidently identify everything. But I do believe Paul's words give us some insight as to how we should approach the subject. And I think my friend Curtis Chang has an excellent analogy, teaches at Duke Divinity School as a former pastor. And he describes this as the difference between reading a map and looking at a compass. And too many of us have looked at prophetic passages like a map, okay? If you're going to Harper's Ferry today, but you're from out of the area, you use a map or in this case your GPS, right? And so you know with your GPS, it's gonna tell you if you're in the south parking, really either parking lot, and the GPS is not Apple Maps, but a good one. Uh, it, it's going to tell you that you need to turn right out of the parking lot. And, and then it's going to tell you you're going to go, I, I don't know, forget, I think maybe about a mile, like 1.7 mile. And you're going to come to a Y. And if you keep going straight down Flowing Springs Road, you're going to go to Charlestown, not Harper's Ferry. If you want to get to your destination, you've got to take a left. And so what do you do? You're looking at the map. 1.7, 1.6, 1.1, and then you look up and you see what's around. And then you look at the map and then you look up and you and then you and then you see the why and you go, there it is. What'd you do? You just did a one-to-one correspondence because it's giving you directions on how to get going where you need to go. The problem is when you treat the Bible that way, when it wasn't intended to be treated that way, and you're like looking at it and then you look up at your surroundings and go, Okay, this is the, okay. so this is the corresponding reality. You live in a very, very tiny place within a very, very small time frame on planet Earth, which means you've got to be careful doing this, okay? Or as that great theologian Bandit Darville used to say, where you're standing on planet Earth determines just how dumb you are. If you remember Smokey and the Bandit, I recommend it. <laughs> Don't treat this like a map okay? Because what you'll end up with is a lot of sensationalism. All right? I know who it is. The Antichrist is alive right now. It's President Putin of Russia. That's who it is. Or it's the prime minister of Israel. It's the head of the European Union. It's President Reagan. It's President Obama. It's President Trump. I have heard it all. I have heard all of it. When we get caught up in an exercise like that, we're missing the point of Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired word. And by the way, Republican or Democrat, when you go identifying a president as like the Antichrist, let me give you a clue. No matter who he or she is or will be, they're on the wrong side of the planet. Okay? Treat this instead like a compass. See, a compass doesn't make one-to-one equations, does it, in a previously mapped world? If I've got a compass, the only thing it does is it points me to true north. But it helps me by seeing true north, how I'm supposed to navigate the world in general. Okay, Even Paul does this with his application in 2 Thessalonians. He he gives them this information about man of lawlessness, about restrainer, but his his application is not, this is who it is and these are the characteristics you need to look out. His application is get a job. Sometimes the application of Scripture is a lot more earthy than we would rather it be. And so just like every other age before us, we will throughout our lives experience this tug away from truth and toward error and away from peace and toward division. And sometimes those things are going to come in a very attractive package, inviting us into what appear to be greener pastors. The prosperity gospel has done a magnificent job of this. And a lot of people are going to go to hell because of it. Sometimes it comes through cultural pressure or through fear Is it possible that all this culminates in some singular person who takes over the world so that we all experience the delusion and violence at once? Well, that's certainly possible. But whatever your conclusions about Antichrist, the aim of the Holy Spirit here is not to get you to identify him, but to get you to pick up your compass so that you don't lose focus on your true north. Don't go off course. Don't get distracted. Don't get bogged down in charts and Venn diagrams and obsessing about all the evil in the world. Don't quit your job like some of these people did. Stay faithful, follow Jesus. Continue to be faithful. And following Jesus requires, this is not new truth, this is very old, but still about as unpopular as a belch in a crowded elevator, it requires rejecting some things. You can't cling to Jesus without leaving some things behind. And that's what we learn when we examine the Bible's words around this other peculiar subject that we find in Revelation 13. Read with me, beginning in verse 16. Also it causes all, both great, small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of man. And his number is 666. Back pre-COVID, we were starting to grow a little bit and I was getting excited until one, I think, June day, I saw the total amount of attendees at all of our weekend services this was back around 2018 666 and the whole staff freaked out (laughs) this is just what we reflexively do right oh my gosh it's the number right so let's let's dig into this a little bit what's being described here is a it's obvious it's a strict governance of commerce and it's tied to a mark which is in turn tied to the man that we talked about a little earlier this personality (laughs) But the question is really the same as it is with the Antichrist. Do we want to give this a modern reading or do we want to give uh, the first century reading? And, and I'm going to argue for the latter on the basis of how horribly we have jacked up the former just over the last 100 years. Let me give you just a, an example here. Well, let me give you several. Uh, because a modern reading has resulted in a lot of hysteria over the past century. So if you go back about 90 years, the beast was identified as a lot, by a lot of preachers as Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and his New Deal, and his administration. And the mark of the beast was identified as this thing. This is 90 years ago. So fast forward now 90 years. We don't even think about this anymore. You don't even leave the hospital when you're born without one of these, this nine-digit number called a social security number. People in America in the 1930s were warned against this. This is the coming of the new world order. This is the beast. Fast forward Twenty years. Everybody's kind of gotten accustomed to that. Phone companies were starting to expand their telecommunications capacity around the world. I couldn't just call Maybell anymore and say, "Hey, Maybell, um, I, I, I need I need to talk to Epp, who's sitting down here on the front row." Now, now she she don't know who Epp is, so I have to say Todd Epperly. And then after that, things got so big that there's, believe it or not, more than two or three Todd Epperleys in the world. And so I have to say, maybe put me in touch with Shepherdstown, 4398. And then that four-digit number turned into a seven-digit number. And then finally telecommunications developed the capacity to connect the whole country, sea to shining sea. But in order to do that, they had to designate regions and they decided to do that by states. And in order to uh, to make that happen, to execute on that, they had a three-digit number called an area code that they began to plug in, and a lot of rural areas were warned. That's the mark of the beast. Happened again in the 1970s with the rollout of credit card numbers. Happened again in the 1980s with barcodes and UPC symbols. Happened in the early 2000s with the Internet, and today... It's the COVID vaccine. Now, if you've got, let me put this out here. I know there's a lot of of controversy. I know there's a lot of opinion around it. You should know by now that we're not forcing, we don't require it of our staff or anybody else. We respect, I get there's concern about ingredients. I get there's concern about the timing and how long it took for it to do it. I absolutely respect a different view, okay? But I do not respect stupid. And the vaccine as the mark of the beast is stupid. I love you, okay? But it's just stupid. That's not even, that's not even liberalism. That, that's, that's, that, it's too stupid to even be liberalism. One, but let me give you one common feature of all of this, okay? There's an institution or there's national change that people are suspicious of, which is fine, right? This whole country was built on suspicion of institutions and government. I don't think that's wrong. I don't think it's wrong to ask questions. I don't think it's wrong to have a different opinion, But what happens is when that different opinion becomes so suspicious and so conspiratorial that people want to figure out a way to invoke religious language over it to justify their suspicions further. And when you consider the 100-year track record of American Christians trying to identify the mark of the beast, listen, it's worse than the completion record in last night's Clemson game. And I shouldn't know, because that hurt. All you Georgia Bulldogs, I'm still, I still love you, but not today. All right. It was bad, wasn't it? That was just a bad game, right? It's, that's our batting average in trying to identify this thing. Zero, as in worse than the Jehovah's Witnesses, brothers and sisters. That's saying something. Maybe it's time to question whether we're doing this right. So let me give you another analogy. Rather than looking at a passage like this, like a crystal ball, expecting it to predict something for us or identify something, I'm going to suggest we read this more like an x-ray. I mentioned this analogy the other day. What do you do with an x-ray? I get a simple fracture this afternoon. I go to the ER. After I wait five hours because of all the pandemonium down there, they finally get me into a room, and they get my my hand x-rayed, and they throw it up, and what are they doing? They're looking through the picture to a reality. So what happens if we lay an X-ray over Revelation 13? What's the result? Well, what's clear is the numbers connected to a man. In the first century, the Jews shared a common code in Hebrew literature that cross-referenced their letters to numbers. And when you use that cross-reference tool as it was intended, 666 translates precisely to the name Nero. Now, does that mean that this is the ultimate and final fulfillment? Not necessarily, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, as a fact, that's the translation, okay? The Roman emperor. Now, most likely, by the time Revelation was written, Nero's already off the scene, and you have another emperor whose name is Domitian, but it was Nero who persecuted the Christians so harshly, and specifically because they refused to worship him. It was his reign out of which came that original cry, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, okay? And so out of that, you have all of this persecution, John's initial audience would have remembered those days when those persecutions began. They would remember when it started. They would have remembered who started it. And so what we can take away from this brief look into the struggle of our first century brothers and sisters is vindication of what Paul teaches us about spiritual warfare and the world system. That system and our enemy who oversees it has throughout history conspired against the people of God by finding ways to marginalize them. This is simply a part of the Christian experience. You see it in the early Roman persecutions, you see it in the caves of Cappadocia some 200 years later where Christians hid from their Roman and then later their their Arab persecutors. You see it all the way up until today where people are marginalized for their faith and it is always by their refusal to be marked with the rest of the world. Is that literal? I don't know, but I can tell you this Forehead corresponds to worldview and your way of thinking. Right hand, right arm, almost indefinitely in Scripture when it's not used literally, refers to a base of authority. So what is my authority? Is Jesus Lord or is something else Lord? What am I going to be marked by? Whether or not there's some chip or some thing that comes in the future that is literal, that remains a question for you and me, brothers. Who's going to mark us? Is it going to be Jesus or something else? Who's going to get our allegiance? Who do I look to as my authority? Is it the world or is it Jesus? And so that's going to get you in trouble. I did that this past week with some court decisions down in Texas saying, as a Christian ought to say, who believes that life begins at conception, that this is a good thing. And hearing all kinds of horrible, almost pornographic, certainly profane language, coming back at me through social media, it's it's okay. It's okay. Don't respond in kind, lest you be marked like the rest of the world. You can be kind and speak the truth. You don't have to be a jackass. You, You don't, and you shouldn't be one. Who do I look to as my authority? Yeah, we live in a world where you're going to be increasingly, what do you mean marriage is between a man and a woman? What do you you mean there's one way to God? What do you mean love your enemy? That one applies to everybody. What do you mean his kingdom is not in this of this world? We have to save our country. Here's the deal. Here's what we learn from this passage, whether now or whether later, and regardless of whether this merely describes the dynamic of Christian suffering or also points to some future time and a literal mark. The point is this is a reality and a choice that will have to be faced by every follower of Jesus. And the warning is abundantly simple. Do not, do not, do not so interlace your identity with the powers of this earth. And I know we're divided as a country right now on left and right. So whatever you are, you need to think about your own tribe and not the other one right now. Do not interlace your identity with the powers of this earth. Because eventually, they're going to expect total, complete, and unquestioned allegiance from you. And when you refuse to give it for them, to them, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. It doesn't matter who they are. You say, well, what's the answer? Keep following the compass of Scripture. Allow the Word of God to tell you what is true. Keep holding claims to your allegiance up to that x-ray machine of the Word of God to reveal what's behind the scenes and be willing, if necessary, to be politically homeless, to be culturally homeless because you love Jesus more. To be marginalized. Because, you know what? In the end, that's just a sign you're not home yet. And I'm not either. That's that's just a sign that you're not home yet. Which brings me to the final contrast: when you read passages like this, do you read them in fear or do you read them in hope? If you finish reading scripture like this and you are afraid, anxious, angry, either you're doing it wrong, or you're not reading it with the right heart. How do I know that? Well, because. That same Bible tells me that God has not given us a spirit of fear. That's how I know. Passages like this honestly and graphically remind us that this world is not our home. So do not pursue your ultimate aim in riches, fame, satisfaction, way of life, family, because it's all going away one day. I've talked about that, haven't I? Yeah, my, my wife will not be my wife in heaven. She'll be my sister. My children will not be my children in heaven. They will be my brother, my sister. Even the family unit goes away one day. So let's treat it with the dignity that God intends us to treat it. Let's honor marriage. Let's do what we need to do to raise godly children. Let's do right by Jesus. But let's not worship an institution that was given to us so that we might more adequately worship another. All this stuff goes away. We're reminded sometimes following Jesus means being marginalized and even losing our lives, but we're also reminded victory is coming because Jesus lives and he reigns forever. Is this literal? Is this figurative? Is this a teaching about things that happen repeatedly in cycles throughout history? Regardless of where you land on those questions, here's what you need to know. Whatever this is, Jesus will end it. Jesus will end it. And we're going to hear more from him directly, from the horse's mouth about that next week. But my, my point here is just simple. Don't be afraid. Live in hope. And if you don't know him, that hope can be yours today. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to celebrate, most of us at least, a day off and some time to just take a breath before the busy fall season begins, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with hope. I thank you for a, a word from you that reminds us <clears throat> that this world is not our home, that, that warns us against tying our identity and our allegiance to anything other than the Lord Jesus, but also reminds us that if we'll do that, that no matter what we face right now, and Lord, I have no doubt, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of fear, father you would give them the faith of believing jesus lives jesus reigns and that they just simply need to cling to their true north and continue to be faithful give them the strength to do that today and if there are those who don't know you may they come to know you today so that these passages do not stoke fear and anxiety in their hearts but the hope that Our brothers and sisters in the past have dealt with these things. These things may yet still be in our future, but come what may, we can trust you, and we can sleep at night because of who you are and because of what you've promised. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God, and if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here. I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.